This evening I'd like for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 38. Now Shephatiah the son of Matan, Gedaliah the son of Pashur, Yukal, or as we heard his name last week, Jehukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur the son of Micaiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus saith the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princess said to the king, Please let this man be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. We have been looking at these last few chapters of the book of Jeremiah from the, from the perspective of the prophet continuing to give forth the message to the leadership of Jerusalem and of Judah that because all of the armies of Babylon are surrounding Jerusalem, the city, and they've made their siege against Jerusalem. Their siege mounds have been built. At any given time, Babylon is going to act and take down the whole city. Yet we've seen how the leadership has, has forsaken the Lord, forsaken the prophet, forsaken the word of God, and have not listened. So this continues on and it kind of reminds us now of how many times God has to say something before He can get our attention. How many times did God have to say something before He got His people's attention? Until He had to say, this is it. Now we've already seen the messages that God has given to His people through Jeremiah, where He says, this is it. God is not hearing your prayer anymore. So we have gone off the chronology time uh, flow and, and realized that once again we're seeing how often God is still to the very end giving the people an opportunity to repent. As we see here in Jeremiah 38... God has, has once again spoken through the prophet. He's been in the court of the prison, uh, uh, or, or the prison that's in the, within the court uh, there of the, of, the, of the palace. He's been mistreated. He's been beaten. And we're going to see once again that he's going to be put into another dungeon. All because they don't want to believe what God is saying 
through him. They're calling him a traitor. They're calling him treasonous because he is in really seeking their behalf. So he's saying, don't fight. Take your medicine. God is going to take you into captivity. If you go to Babylon, you'll be safe. It's even almost going to be like a prize if you go. Not that that's what it was. But it's going to be a whole lot worse if you stay. The sword, pestilence, famine. So once again, there are certain voices that arise. Kill this man. He's weakening our hands. He's weakening the hands of those who are at war against Babylon. We know that that's not going to make it because even the, even the Egyptian army that came up, as we saw last time, came up to help them. Well, once they probably saw the vastness of the Babylonian army, went right back to Egypt. So they were without help. So with all of that in mind, just kind of in review and getting back to where we've been. We hear the words of the ones who want to kill Jeremiah. And for some reason, when reading the first part of chapter 38, I continue to hear the words of Jesus, words so familiar and yet so enigmatic and and, and, and unknowable when you think about it. The words that we hear in Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And while we could spend the better part of two hours trying to parse, exposit, and rightly divide these words in this one verse of Luke, words of Jesus spoken from the cross, wondering whether those who were referred to, uh, to uh, or we were referred to by him, were in fact forgiven or not, I wonder and speculate to some extent how and why some. People would treat a a known servant of the Most High God like Jeremiah with such contempt to want him dead for just doing his job. And what was his job? But being obedient to the Lord God. God says, tell the people this. That's what Jeremiah did. Thus saith the Lord. But Jeremiah was not alone. Think of the words that, uh, that Jesus spoke in Matthew 23, verses 29 through 36, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. I don't know if you know this, but that's from A to Z. 
Even in the Hebrew, it seems. The blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this destruction. And the idea and the thought that there are those who would, without any kind of consideration whatsoever, go and kill the prophets, was something that even Paul would say to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14, 16, 14 through 16, Paul says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as also, or I'm sorry, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now think about this when you look at that passage before that in Matthew where Jesus is actually calling the Pharisees and scribes, the religious people of his time, brood of vipers. Calling them the, the ones who shed the, the very blood of the prophets. Calling them witnesses against themselves. Calling them hypocrites. When we read the passage in Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the, the hall of faith, we're reminded of them as well. Of the prophets that were killed and murdered by those who wouldn't listen to them. Hebrews 11.36 says, Still others at trial, mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. That sounds like Jeremiah, doesn't it? They were stoned, they were sawn in two, that was Isaiah, by the way. Were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy. You know, that was one of the most tremendous statements ever made about any human beings. The world is not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. How we have been given, what a, been given such a great privilege to know Christ. To know the very promise of Christ. And not just to know it academically, but to know it in our hearts. To know it spiritually. To know it experientially. But nonetheless, it came to us, the message of the promise it came to us at a very high price didn't it the blood of the righteous the blood of the prophets the blood of the apostles so that we here today 
can live our lives right and holy before God without taking anything for granted of what it took for that message to come to us. And so as for the man who saw Jeremiah's death, getting back to Jeremiah, by the way, yes, I have to admit, I got off on this part. (laughs) Because it burdened my heart. It burdens my heart when we take God's word for granted and not remembering what it cost for it to come to us. But as for the men who saw Jeremiah's death, these were four high-ranking officials who had become increasingly angry with the prophet because he continued to preach even while he was a prisoner and and, and therefore demanded that he be put to death. Obviously they hated him because he continued to point out their sins and to demand that they live righteously or else face God's judgment. Most likely these four officials represented a, a much larger group who were fed up with Jeremiah condemning them all the time however Jeremiah was also encouraging the people to surrender to Babylon by God's orders surrender to Babylon what was the encouragement there the encouragement was if you surrender to Babylon you go into captivity but that's exactly where God wants you he's trying to teach you a lesson but if you refuse you're going to die You're going to die in Jerusalem. You're going to die by the sword. You're going to die by the pestilence. You're going to die by famine. The pestilence was going to be there. Why? Because when the sword came and they started killing people, there were going to be dead bodies all around. The famine, of course, because there was no longer any bread and there wouldn't be. Jeremiah is trying to encourage the people. God wants to teach them a lesson so that He can bless them once again. Sometimes we don't get that now. That if we bring correction to someone, it is because they need to know that God loves them so much that He wants them to be right so that He can bless them once again. Because for a certain amount of time, they have not been listening to God. And even if they try to pray to God their prayers weren't being heard. We've seen that happen in in the book of Jeremiah many times. It's been one of the sub-themes. You don't... You can pray all you want, but I'm not hearing you. God even told Jeremiah, stop praying for the people. I have a purpose for this. So none of these men were strangers detached from earlier attempts at getting rid of Jeremiah. Gedaliah's dad, Pashur, was probably the person who had Jeremiah beaten and put into stocks in chapter 20. That was a long time ago. Jukal or Yehukal in chapter 37, last week we met him. He was sent by Zedekiah to ask about a word from God concerning the siege of Jerusalem in that same verse. Pashur, the son of uh, uh, Micaiah, was, was the fellow that was sent by Zedekiah to ask about Babylon's initial attack on Jerusalem back in chapter 21. So these, these guys weren't strangers uh, detached from, from their hatred of, of, uh, of Jeremiah. 
And when you think about it, this is a pretty good example here as far as Jeremiah is concerned. This is a pretty good example of what happens when prophets and the like say things that aren't politically correct. That's a big deal today, isn't it? You know, there, there, there is a status quo on this issue of being politically correct. I don't buy into it. I don't like that. Because the so-called uh, guardians of being politically correct are most of the time biblically incorrect. And most of the time they're culturally incorrect and socially incorrect, or should I say socialistically incorrect. But not getting into politics. Nonetheless, it's called that, isn't it? Jeremiah was not politically correct. So everybody was up in arms because of what Jeremiah was saying. Some people just don't like to hear that the home team is going to lose. And then to hear that from a hometown fella. One of our very own is telling us we're going to lose. But here's what Jeremiah was trying to tell them all along. And tell them all. God's working here. Let His will be done. God is working here. Let His will be done. So all that can be said then about these people that want Jeremiah dead is what Jesus said. They know not what they do. They know not what they do. You see, that's why it's such a an enigma to think of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll tackle that at another time. But they know better. And I think that that's what we have to come to grips with. They know better. Because they have the Word of God. And Jehoiakim burned it. Got rid of it. They had the Word of God, but the people didn't do it. They had the Word of God, but the people didn't heed it. They had the Word of God, but the people didn't want to be constantly told that they were in sin. Even though, you see, even though they would go to the temple on Sabbath, offer their sacrifices there, look pious, and yet the rest of the week they were in their high places, and you could see them, the high places, with all of the offerings and sacrifices that they were giving to their other gods, which was a detestable thing and an abominable thing to God, the worship of idols. And we have to be very careful ourselves in our day and time. Why? Because too many people will want to come to church on Sunday, go through the motions of being, you know, a Christian and whatnot, but then the rest of the week living with their idols and serving their idols, which may at times be feeding the flesh, the biggest idol of them all. 
somewhere in there, American Idol, I don't know. I just had to throw that in there. So then Zedekiah said this in verse 5. Zedekiah the king said, look, he is in your hand. See, they've come to him and say, let's kill this guy. And he says, look, he's in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. This guy's the king. And he's saying, uh, yeah, I can't do anything. You know, I, I don't want to mess up our little relationship here. So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon of Melchiah the king's son, and, which was in the court of the prison. And they, they let Jeremiah down with ropes. So that lets us know that the dungeon was really an old cistern, a place where water was stored. And, and uh, then it was a pretty deep one because they had to let him down with ropes. And then it says, and in the dungeon there was no water, but mire. Mire is kind of one of those fancy or old type words for mud. A mud mixed with clay and, and lime. And, and so it, it could have been pretty thick. You know, we don't know how thick the mud was, but I'm pretty sure that it was uh, relatively thick to uh, cause some concern a little later. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to see the last phrase there. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. He's the prophet. He's the good guy here. He's the servant of God that is doing exactly what God told him to do. And he ends up in the mud. It happens to us sometimes. It happens to us as servants of God that we sometimes find ourselves in a muddy place. But realize this. God knows we're there. And God knows when to deliver us, as we'll see in a moment. So at this point, we meet Zedekiah again, but now we see him in all of his wimpiness. He is the biggest wimp here in Jeremiah so far. As a supposed leader, a guy who's supposed to be the leader, the king of Judah. Now listen, one of the characteristic traits of a king of Israel or of Judah was that of a courageous and steadfast leader whose sole purpose before the people was to wholeheartedly trust the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in all the affairs of the nation. And once again we observe Zedekiah because we've seen him go through these paces before. We observe him again uh, as a vacillating, uh, uh, spineless leader indecisive leader who was too cowardly and fickle to stand against his officials who wanted Jeremiah dead. Now remember I said last week, you know, Zedekiah oftentimes came even uh, very similar to uh, Nicodemus who came at night to go see Jesus. You know, he would have these secret uh, meetings with, with uh, Jeremiah. He wanted to hear what Jeremiah had to say. But he didn't want anybody to know that he was hearing what Jeremiah had to say. But what did it do? It didn't bring him to the fear of God to the point that he said, Okay, you know what? We're going to listen to what he says. Instead, he tells the guys, You want to kill him? He's in your hands. In other words, I wash my hands of it. Sound familiar? 
Well, what would have been the outcome of the, of the children of Israel if Joshua had adopted this type of powerless, indecisive character after the Exodus and prior to the crossing of the Jordan? What if Joshua had, had that indecisiveness, had that cowardliness? What would have happened to the children of Israel? We're told in Joshua 1, verses 5 through 9, God, in essence, speaking uh, to Joshua, not in essence, speaking directly to, to Joshua. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Then he says, Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Very courageous. Second time he tells them to be strong and courageous. That you may observe to do according to all that the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. That you may prosper wherever you go. Then he, spoke, he speaks of the word. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate in it day and night. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. So he says be strong and of good courage. Be strong and very courageous. And be strong and of, and of good courage. And do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Folks, we can be strong and courageous for the Lord because we know that God is with us. Strong and courageous against the things that are trying to attack us. Strong and courageous against the things that are trying to bring us down. Strong and courageous against the works and the wiles of the devil who is trying to destroy your walk each and every day of your life. He says, you can be strong and courageous because I am with you. The key isn't we will become strong and courageous because we lift weights and we do all kinds of exercises and whatever. We're strong and courageous because we trust in Him. And we know that He's our strength. He's our life. He's our reason for living. He's our reason for moving. He's our reason for doing everything that we do. So if Joshua hadn't had that courage and strength that came from God? Would we ever hear the words in Joshua 24 when he says in verses 14 and 15 now therefore fear the Lord he's telling the people now at the end of his life fear the Lord serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt. What is he saying? Put away. Why? Because they were messing around with idols. And he says, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Had he not had that characteristic trait of steadfastness and strength and courage that came from the Lord, would he have ever said, as for me and my house? Well, as for me and my house, we're out of here. No, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see. 
But now, here in Jeremiah, as Darius uh, reluctantly ordered Daniel to be cast into the lion's den, and Pilate grudgingly ordered Jesus to be handed over to be crucified, so now Zedekiah unwillingly told Jeremiah's accusers to do with him what they must. The prophet was then lowered by ropes into this dungeon, which was really a cistern to hold water. But since there had been this, this drought, it's believed the drought during this time uh, was recorded prior to the time frame, what would be found then at that bottom of the, the dungeon, as I said before, would be this thick mire of mud. And this was obviously intended, it was intended for them to put Jeremiah into it as a gradual and revolting death. First of all, they didn't know how deep it was. And if it was deep enough, because certainly water, you know, and condensation and all of that taking place, there would be water mixed with whatever other mud and dirt and everything else at the bottom. They didn't know how much was in there. But, you know, if you've ever walked in a, in a, in a lake or in a river, you know, and you, you feel the dirt underneath you, it doesn't feel real good unless you just like that stuff. The fact of the matter is, if there's enough water, you can sink in pretty good. And if the mud was pretty thick, he could get to a point where he would either drown or suffocate. So the idea was, we're going to kill him, but we're going it to be a nice and slow process. Because that's what he said to them. He says, do what you must. He'd already been in prison. He'd already been in, 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 in shackles. He'd already been beaten. So they were, they were killing him by putting him into this place. But do you know what? The king didn't want any knowledge of this. He says, I don't want to see it. I know nothing. For those of you who like comedies from the 60s. And the officials, lowering their victim by rope, took care to let death arrive by natural causes. With every intention to sink the pest, Jeremiah, into the mire of this cistern and bury him there for good, Zedekiah and these officials were actually bringing this judgment upon themselves as we shall see in verse 22. For in verse 22 it says, Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes, and those women shall say, Your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Speaking to Zedekiah, Your feet have sunk in the mire. And they have turned away again. You see, they would be the ones that would be trapped. Zedekiah in particular would be the one who would be trapped. Because you see, whenever we go against God's word to that extent of being so, so habitual in it, so, so much uh, just really revolting against God's word and God's will. Listen, you are becoming a witness against yourself. So when they put Jeremiah into the mud, God said, just as you did that to him, that's going to be what's going to happen to you. And that's why it is said, your feet have sunk in the mire, and they've turned away again. They just judged themselves by what they did in putting Jeremiah into that Sister. So they were the ones that were and would be trapped. But Jeremiah also knew that this suffering was inevitable to a servant of God. 
especially in times like his? How many times have we seen Jeremiah go through so many things? Even to the point of saying, Lord, I, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this. I, I don't want to go through this anymore. There's a verse of scripture behind me, isn't there? Y'all looking at it. It's too soon. You know, I, I, I'm ready to give up except for the fact that something's burning inside of me. Something's burning inside of me. I can't let go. Psalm 34, 4. The psalmist says, I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And that's not just nice poetry. It is exactly what He means. He delivered me from all my fears. All means all. Later on in the same psalm, David says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. All means all. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. If I underline anything in my Bible, I I would underline that. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. In other words, who understand and know what it means to be broken before God. Because you see, if we're broken before God, He knows how to fix us. If we're broken before God, He knows how to mend us. He knows how to heal us to the point that we don't even know that we didn't even know that we were broken. That's how good God is at mending our hearts. He says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as as, a, as have a contrite spirit. Spirit that says, Lord, I, I know that I've sinned. I know that I have been a sinner. And I'm sorry for having sinned against you, a holy God. But then he says in 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I want you to note the word many. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. There have been no promises from Genesis to Revelation that those who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior would have a free, clean, pure, nice, holy walk without having any kind of problems or struggles. As a matter of fact, we'll see in just a moment that uh, for those who desire to be godly, you're going to have persecution. But notice it says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We tend to think that if we're walking in the Lord's will, doing those things that he's called us to do, that life will be a breeze. God will protect us from difficult times. That's just not true. He'll, put, he'll protect us through difficult times. But not from difficult times. If we don't have those difficult times, we don't grow. So God never promises to spare us from all adverse situations. What He does say is that He will be with us as we are going through them. Yes, people do suffer even when they are faithful. Remember what Paul told Timothy. And again, this is what I was referring to. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I want you to notice, by the way, if you have any Bible translations that say might suffer persecution, you throw that one away. Because it doesn't say might, it says will. Will suffer 
Getting back to Jeremiah. Now the friends that stood by Jeremiah. There weren't many, by the way. There were some, because there's always a remnant that God has. But of the friends that stood by Jeremiah, none was braver or, de- or more determined than this palace official from Ethiopia, which was possibly even Sudan, uh, whose name was Ebed Melech, or Ebed Melech. Uh, as we read on, it says, Now Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. And when the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Now you remember that uh, Zedekiah had said, as long as he's in the court of the prison, every day he gets bread until there's no more bread. Now comes the statement, there's no more bread in the city. But, you're going to kill him because you've put him in a place where he can't get any bread at all, or anything to eat. But we have to be reminded that the Lord was far from being done with his dear servant, for he was working behind the scenes to have Jeremiah rescued. The Ethiopian, Ebed-Melech, by the way, Ebed-Melech literally means servant of the king, courageously approached the king while he was sitting at this Benjamin gate. The gate we said would be at the northern part, facing out toward the land of Benjamin. Remember that the rulers and the judges of that day heard the complaints and legal disputes of people at the major gates of the city. Well, Ebed-Melech approached the king and fearlessly charged the four officials with a serious injustice. And informing the king that Jeremiah would soon starve to death in the cistern, he, he pleaded for the prophet's life. And what was the result? Verse 10 says, Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. I wouldn't have taken 30 men to bring Jeremiah out of the dungeon, but more than likely he used 30 men to not only allow those who were going to pull him out of the the dungeon uh, to do so, but also to protect Jeremiah. So Ebed-Melech took the men uh, with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from their old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. Yes, the word armpits is in the Bible. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him up, lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. The courage of his own royal official, Ebed-Melech, strengthened the the king's backbone for for a time. And he ordered Jeremiah's immediate rescue. We talked about the 30 royal guards to help Ebed-Melech. And so, taking the guards, Ebed-Melech hurried to the storage room, 
secured those worn out clothes, rushed them to the cistern, lowered the clothes to Jeremiah on a rope. After instructing the prophet to put the clothes under his arms as a pad to protect them from the ropes, he had the men pull Jeremiah the cistern. So Jeremiah was rescued, but he remained a prisoner in the courtyard of the palace. But Ebed Melech brings to mind the kind of servant that the Lord would have us to be. I believe this is the kind of servant that God wants all of us to be. A person that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 when he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So this Ethiopian serves as a, an example for us of a heart that sees a burden, a heart that sees a problem that someone has, that someone is bearing and seeks to lift that burden from them. May it be that in this new year we'll have that in, in mind to do as, as we make our daily resolutions to serve the Lord. That if we find someone that is in need of, of anything, that we can be there to ease the suffering or to meet the need as we see it. So we go on in verse 14. And then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. In other words, Jeremiah knew his track record. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Now understand that uh, the reason why he's so secretive with him is that if any of these officials see Zedekiah doing anything that might appear to uh, be aiding and abetting the enemy or aiding and helping the enemy, as they saw Jeremiah, then they would consider it conspiracy. So in a sense, you know, he's protecting himself. This would be the final meeting that Zedekiah has with Jeremiah. And again, we notice how cowardly, spineless, vacillating he is with the prophet. Zedekiah really continues to want Jeremiah to have a different message than the one that, that he's preached many times over. So as suspicious as Jeremiah was with the king's intentions, Jeremiah prompted the king in a way to to swear that he would not put him to death or turn him over to those who would. Convinced that the king was truthful, Jeremiah shared the word of God with him. 
And this is what Jeremiah said to Zedekiah. Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, verse 17, the God of Israel, if you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. The city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. What are you hearing? The same message. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you. So it shall be well with you and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes, and those women shall say, Your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire, and they have turned away again. So they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but you, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Jeremiah is begging Zedekiah to surrender so the city and its people will be spared. He wants the king to repent and to return to the Lord so death won't come upon this nation. God will do and does the same thing with us. He begs people to turn to Him. You, you may have heard people say this, I don't believe a God of love would send a person to hell. I'm, I'm sure you've heard some variation of that particular statement. I don't believe a God of love would send a person to hell. Well, you know, they're right. They're right. God doesn't send anyone to hell. You go there by choice. You go there by choice because you refuse to believe what God says. And you refuse to do what God says. So God doesn't send anyone to hell. In fact, it's not easy to get there. But if you try hard enough, if you reject all that God is showing you, you'll make it. Anybody want to go? I don't see any hands go up. That's good. I hope you heard what I was saying. I I hope, I hope you heard what I was talking about. Okay. That's not God's desire. His desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think of these two verses in Ezekiel 18. Now, I would rather you read all the verses, but because of time I have to give you these two verses. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do, you, do I, God is saying, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when you go down to verse 32 of the same chapter, Ezekiel, uh, God says in Ezekiel, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. That's God's desire. 
We've always said, and as we're going to learn in our study of the book of Genesis uh, on Sunday mornings, God is a God of life. Not of death. He's the God of life. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. That is the idea and the mentality and the attitude of heart that Jeremiah wanted Zedekiah to have. You're fearing man, Zedekiah. But if you trust the Lord, you'll be safe. So obey what God says. But Zedekiah rejected the Lord because of what others were going to say or might say. What others would do to him. He was afraid to obey God because of peer pressure. Things haven't changed much much over the years. I mean, that same peer pressure has caused many to reject the Lord today. You, You see in verse 19, Zedekiah admitted that he feared man than God. He'd already proven that he feared the officials of his government more than he feared the Lord. But now he openly confessed to Jeremiah that he feared the Jews who had defected to Babylon. He thought that if he surrendered to the Babylonians, they would turn to him. Uh, they would turn him over to be tortured by the Jews who hated him and had defected. And these Jews had opposed Zedekiah's rebellion against Babylon. Thus, when Babylon invaded the land, they, they had defected in order to keep Zedekiah from imprisoning and executing them. So now Zedekiah confessed that he feared that these Jews might take vengeance on him if he surrendered. So in verses 20-23, Zedekiah is given strong assurance from Jeremiah that God cared for him, but that the king was also warned to obey God. And if he obeyed, he would not be turned over to the defectors and his life would be spared. If he disobeyed God and refused to surrender, he would face God's judgment. And the judgment would be most humiliating. His harem would ridicule him in front of the Babylonian conquerors. They would mock his humiliating defeat and his gullible, misguided trust in his false counselors. His feet would be sinking in that mire while his so-called friends would desert him. But what was Zedekiah's response in so many words? Don't tell on me. That was his response. Would you look at verse 24? Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. But if the princes hear that I have talked with you, and they come to you and say to you, Declare to us now what you have said to the king, and also what the king said to you, do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I presented my request before the king, that he would not make me return to Jonathan's house to die there. Well, you know what? That was true. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Then all the princes came to Jeremiah and asked him. And he told them according to all these words that the king had commanded. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been heard. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken. And he was there when Jerusalem was taken. So tragically, and once again, the king rejected the Lord's counsel. And so to the very end of his life, Zedekiah remained a weak cowardly, spineless, vacillating, fearful ruler. And this fear, or this fact, I should say, is clear, uh, clearly seen in what happened next. Because he commanded Jeremiah to say nothing about their meeting. 
And if the prophet told anyone about the meeting, he would be executed. So obviously the king feared that if news leaked out about that secret meeting, as I mentioned before, his officials would misunderstand. So they would think that he was secretly planning to either surrender Jerusalem or else escape with the help of Jeremiah. So the king insisted on complete secrecy. However, this king also knew how difficult it was to keep secrets from leaking out within the royal court, so he took special precaution. If the officials ever found out about the meeting, Jeremiah was to simply say that he had personally appealed to the king not to be sent back to prison in Jonathan's house. Jeremiah could agree to this because it was the truth. He had indeed made such an appeal to the king. It's already been, you know, he already made that appeal before, so it would have been understood. If the officials ever approached him about the secret meeting and Jeremiah gave them only this information, he'd be telling the truth. But now to close here, I want you to consider this question. Why do people fall into the trap of turning cowardly and indecisive? Now, there's a long list here, so be patient and listen. There's the fear of criticism. Some people just don't like to be criticized. Others fear losing their livelihood, position, honor, or fame. So they have the fear of losing what they feel they have the control of. Still, others fear ridicule. They fear mockery. They fear persecution. There are those who become cowardly because they fear the power, the might, and the threats of stronger people and nations. And many people shrink back from confrontation. Or they just lack They just lack in the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. So, Zedekiah then becomes this great big picture of of an indecisive, weak, spineless leader who had no strength whatsoever to do what was right. So where do we look at his faults and his failures but in the fact that he refused to believe the Lord. He rejected the word of God. He had an ear for it. He wanted Jeremiah to tell him all about what God was saying but you know it reminds you sometimes of people like the Herod's did the same thing with John the Baptist and Paul without ever repenting. But there's a tremendous word given to us in Isaiah to close with tonight, Isaiah 51, verses 12 and 13. God says, I even I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and, the, and of the Son of Man who will be made like grass? Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die? And you forget the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy and where is the fury of the oppressor 
Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the Son of Man who will be made like grass? Certainly one of the lessons of this chapter is the need to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Leaning not upon our own understanding. Acknowledging God in all of His ways so that He will direct our paths. To take hold of the courage that God gives us the strength that God gives us, of, gives us of Himself so that we can do great and awesome things. Not by might or power, but by His Spirit. Not for our sake, but for the glory of His name and for the wonders of His kingdom. And to exalt the name of Jesus above all things. We need that courage. And we need that strength. Without Him we're nothing. Without Him we have nothing. But with Him we have everything that we need. For life and for godliness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?